Bonjour and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff, actionable marketing podcast for people sick of marketing bullshit. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. After four years, 175 episodes recorded, 9,625 minutes of no-bullshit content published, and 1 million plus downloads reached, I felt it was time to shake things up a bit. You see... I want to help you radically stand out because I firmly believe it's the only way for you to succeed without marketing bullshit. So moving forward, each episode is going to be around 20 minutes long. Each episode is going to be super practical where I'm going to teach you one way to radically stand out that you can apply to your business today. I'm going to use snippets of past interviews, the lessons I've learned from my own experience and plenty of concrete examples. Oh, and one last thing. I'm also turning each of those episodes into the only newsletter focusing on differentiation and positioning so you can read at your own pace and remember the concept I'm teaching. If it's of interest, I hope you'll sign up today on everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'll also notify you when I launch new stuff and products and you can win rewards for referring other mavericks to the newsletter, like branded cups and t-shirts and posters and private group coaching and plenty of other nice little surprises. All right, on to the podcast. If like me, you've played video games like Crash Bandicoot or Angry Birds more recently, you probably have seen those TNT wooden boxes everywhere. You know, the ones where you jump on and you get killed instantly. TNT is an interesting compound. It actually took 30 years to discover its explosive properties because it's actually very difficult to detonate. In fact, it used to be used as a yellow dye. So it's extremely stable. Uh, you can like safely pour it into shell cases, for example. It doesn't interact with water. You can like move it around, shake it all about, and it won't explode. However, if you add a tiny starter explosive inside it and trigger that, it will make incredible damage. And that's why TNT as a compound is used in military, industrial, mining, to destroy buildings and dig big holes in the ground. So why am I telling you this? Turns out that this is pretty much what happens to us people, humans, before we buy something. Meaning that we kind of behave like the TNT, which is we don't really do anything until something happens that makes us buy something. And this piece of information is, I would say, the most underlooked, yet the most important one you can collect about your customers to understand who they are, to understand why they buy, and use this information to stand out. And this piece of information is something I notice a lot when I teach my program Stand the Fuck Out. It's something that is quite difficult for people to get their head around, and that doesn't come usually naturally. And I also know that it's something that most marketing experts don't really talk about. So without this piece of information, you will likely struggle to find customers early on ready to buy. You will likely struggle to know what they search for on Google, for example. You likely struggle to know what to say to them. You likely struggle to know where to be, for example, in real life or online. And leading brands in your category will probably eat the piece of the pie that you could have uh, potentially taken. Now, marketers... If you're listening to this right now, you're usually acquainted with the concept of, you know, pain, gain, goals, dreams, and all of that. But it is not enough. Alan Clement, who's expert in the job to be done methodology, who's the author of When Kale and Coffee Compete, explains that it's all about a chemical reaction. 
how I like to think about demand is you're right is again like a, a chemical reaction. So it's like these these things coming together that have to come together in order for me to go out into the market and hope to uh, make some change. So like, like for example, because like it can't be just enough of, of how you would like things to be. Like, for example, I don't want my fingernails to grow. Like I'm tired of cutting my nails or like I don't want to grow old or, you know, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want these things, but I'm not out there searching for a product of like make my fingernails stop growing or I'm not out there looking for a product that's going to stop me from aging. Like, I mean, real aging, not like wrinkles and stuff. But the, the reason why I'm not doing that is because well, I don't believe that that's possible. So it's like there, there might be some things that people don't like about the way things are, but unless they believe that there's some solution that is out there, then demand won't happen. So like there, there's one part of I have like there has to be some idea uh, of a better future for myself, those, some kind of B goals right, of how I would like things to be. And then the, the second part is I have to believe that there's some product out there that can help make that, you know, make that actually happen. And then there has to be some constraints that I'm facing right now that's preventing me from attaining that, that B state. So like those three things have to exist that, that come together. And then that's what creates demand. So just like the TNT that won't ignite if it's not triggered, demand for a product or service won't happen and customers won't be taking a decision or looking for a solution anytime soon without something to trigger this reaction. People can be in pain for years and years and years before starting to make a move. They can have dreams and things to potentially gain without doing anything. So let me give you an actual concrete example of that. I interviewed Mark Ritson for the second time a few months ago and pay very close attention to how brand consultant and former marketing professor describe how he took the decision to finally create his course, the mini MBA, after thinking about it for years. It took about a year of not giving a fuck first. So I, I had my first child. We've been, I've been married a long time. We were almost not going to have kids. And then we had them. And then my first kid came along and it was like, it was needs must because I did two weeks a month on a plane working for clients and it was suddenly not going to be possible to do that. So this idea I'd had, but not really done anything about suddenly became an imperative because my wife was going to chop my balls off if I got on planes anymore with three month old baby. There are men that get away with that shit, but I'm not one of them. My wife runs the show. She's like, good men celebrate having dominant, powerful, superior women in their lives. And mine's oh, partners. Yeah, fuck. I'm not attracted to women that aren't better than me. Yeah, she just basically went, what are we going to do about this? Because you can't travel anymore and you have expensive tastes. Now, it's very interesting, isn't it? I think it's something to unpack right here. Mark has been thinking about potentially launching a course based off of his own experience as a marketing professor. So he will not have to travel or work that much. Something that has been on his mind for years. It's probably something he's been talking to his wife about for a long time, something he kept thinking about in the shower. But he never did anything about it. It was a dream, it was a goal, but it stayed a dream. And then external events happened. A child and a wife expecting him to be at home more often. Suddenly, this desire future became a real goal to reach and the chemical reaction happened. Just like the TNT with the trigger, it exploded. It went from being stable to highly unstable, from remaining in place to changing and going into a specific direction. 
So this piece of information I'm talking about that you likely have never kind of come across from your customer to ignite that TNT are the triggers. A very interesting research called the messy middle. Google defined triggers as being responsible for moving consumers from a passive state to an active purchase state. Again, remember the TNT, passive state, nothing happens, active state, something major happened. McKinsey, in their decision-making process, also talks about triggers to start the initial consideration set, then active evaluation, moments of purchase, loyalty loop, post-purchase, and all of that. And Alan Clement's definition, he calls them catalysts, but it's basically the exact same thing. He says, catalysts are events that create an unmet goal, affect the value of an unmet goal, create a constraint, affect a constraint, or affect our choice set. And here is again talking about triggers and catalysts and how it accelerates demand formulation. The way that we think about demand is like a chemical reaction. Like things have to come together in order for demand to be synthesized. And so we want to kind of highlight these things that are helpful. And this is particularly helpful for marketing, right? That the catalysts are particularly helpful for marketing. And it also gives really important context to product development. So like, for example, um, when people are thinking about getting a CRM solution, uh, a catalyst might be, um, we're about to launch a new product, right? Or we're about to expand our sales team, or there's been a shakeup in our upper management and, um, you know, they want new tools or new ways of thinking about how to do sales. Like these are the things that are causing you know, the demand formulation, causing a change to, to happen. So the chemical reaction is as follows. You need three ingredients for the chemical reaction to happen. A desired state, a goal, something that they want to avoid, something they want to reach. Constraints, things that might block them in the way, habits or anxieties that might prevent them from taking a decision. And then triggers or trigger to ignite all of that. So you can have this sentence that says, when trigger happens, I want to alleviate those constraints so I can reach that desired state. Here is another example from this time, Paul Meller, who's an advertising wizard and the founder of the UK ad agency, Meller & Smith. In this interview, he's talking about how he got rid of 70% of his clients in a matter of weeks after being in business for four to five years, doing average work for average clients. We're working on a particular project and what should have been a two or three month at the most uh, project turned into over a year. And it was killed. It was killed by indecision, designed by committee, the brief changing halfway through, uh, just all of the th- all of the things that don't create good work. And we were we weren't strong enough, and we didn't fight back, and we just kind of took it. And we tried our best to kind of roll with the punches and um, and kind of keep the project going. I just got to the end, and we got it out, and I just thought fuck this, I'm never doing that again. I'm just never going to put my name to something like that ever again. And, um, and yeah, that was, the, that was the trigger. And, yeah, a couple of months later, uh, it was all, it was, the transition took, yeah, no time at all. Now let's pay attention to what he just said there. The desired state was to never really waste time with the wrong client ever again. The constraints were probably that, what if we get rejected? What if we don't get revenue? What if we let go of those clients and we don't get enough money to pay our salaries and to live comfortably? The trigger though, that made it all happen was that a project, a single project that took forever to materialize, that made them finally say, let's let's fucking do it. 
Now, there's probably have been a number of shitty projects before, but this was the last one, right? This was like the one that really made it ignite this chemical reaction. So imagine the power of having this information and acting on it. So you can find customers about to buy, you can talk their language, you can anticipate their need and show up before your competitors. Because once you know that this trigger is about to happen, you can anticipate the explosion like the TNT. Triggers are categorized as follows. That's from Alan Clement again. He talks about catalyst type, but again, it's the set of triggers. So triggers can be an anticipated event, something that you expect to happen, an unexpected event, something that caught you by surprise, a repeated event, something that will happen over and over again. It could be ads, seeing an ad. It could be word of mouth, someone talking to you about a product or service. It could be observed use, meaning seeing someone else using a specific product. It could be a positive experience with a product, believing that now that I'm using this product, I can do more. A negative experience with a product, meaning maybe I need to change. Maybe they've made progress in their life and they're ready for the next set of progress. And all of those are basically part of triggers. So if you go one step further, because triggers and chemical reaction in people's life in terms of making decisions doesn't necessarily mean they'll buy a product or service. It could be just to do something that has nothing to do with purchase. But when it comes to like a specific purchase in a specific category, Jenny Romaniuk, who's the co-author of How Brands Grow with Baron Sharp, calls them category entry points or CEPs. And those are kind of the sub category of a trigger because they are pathways to the brand, meaning that once this trigger happens, they are likely to think of your category, the type of things you sell. And in the book, she says, cues come from the common experiences that buyers in the category share. For example, we all have birthdays, time we want to treat ourselves, days when we don't have any energy or experience weather when it's too hot to move. These common thoughts, she calls them cues, Category buyers used to locate options to buy are useful category entry points or CEPs. Attaching the brand to these particular memory structures will increase the chance the brand will come to mind in buying situation. Very, very important. And then she goes on to say, category entry points linkages are pathways to the brand. The more CEPs there are, the more pathways there are, and the more opportunities for the brand to be salient there are. You can think of these CEPs as distribution outlets in the mind. When building physical availability, you want your brand to be present in every shopping channel, on the shelf of every supermarket, in every pharmacy, on each retailer website, and in every convenience store. CEPs are the cognitive channels that build mental availability. So the interesting part about CEPs is that I see them as something that is like a subcategory of triggers, right? This is something that directly relates to category. And you can consider those triggers to be instantaneous, you know, you don't think about it a lot. You don't think about those things a lot. They just come to you. They will depend on context. For example, if you're hungry, which would be a trigger, and you're in the office, you won't go at the same place than if you're hungry and you're celebrating your 20th birthday with your wife or your partner, right? So context is key here. It really, really depends on when those triggers happen, with whom, with what product and where and when. And then they're quite inconsistent. This trigger happened and they might think of your brand, um, but then tomorrow this trigger happened and they might not. So this is also why you need to constantly refresh memory structures. So let me give you a few examples of actual triggers. And those triggers came from either my own experience researching that for companies or from participants in my Stand the Fuck Out program. 
So for example, a senior marketer working for a group of senior living facilities identify a recent diagnosis of sickness that require a high care setting to be one of the core triggers of the reason why people start looking at senior living facility. Another one was the physical inability, like a broken hip, that has caused them to reconsider living on their own. The founder of an app teaching coding to primary school teachers in the UK. The trigger is very interesting here, is that it's a concern that the Office for Standards in Education, which is called Ofsted in the UK, will be visiting soon. And if teachers don't have a solid coding program, the school might receive a bad offset grade. So a critical external event that might trigger people to say, well, we need to get our ass in gear to be able to teach coding to our kids. A senior marketer working for a service supplying snacks and drinks in break rooms. The core two triggers were the fact that the pandemic just happened and employees were starting to work from home and something needed to be done and that they were losing expected perks. They used to get those perks in the break room and manager had to do something different. Another one, the founder of an inventory software for small retail stores in Bolivia. One of the core triggers was once they sell an out-of-stock item and they get pissed off about it, they start looking. Interesting, isn't it? A consultant for early-stage B2B SaaS startups would consider a major trigger to be fundraising. As soon as investors have come in to play and give an investment, that's a big trigger for SaaS startups to start hiring consultants and all of that. To go back to Mark Ritson with his many MBA, the core two triggers were a new baby happening and the wife telling him to stop traveling. For Paul Meller and his agency, it was years of hardship and multiple, multiple shitty projects, but the last one was the most important one, a particular difficult project. With the microphone you're hearing my voice from actually happened when I was listening to a Joe Rogan episode and I thought I want to have the kind of similar low deep voice. And I also had to use some budget that I could lose if I didn't. So two interesting triggers there. For Hodjar, the behavior analytics company I used to work for, one of the core triggers that we saw was when a new boss joins the team and they need to reach the target or they need to increase conversion. That was a big trigger that made people start looking. And then finally, for a client of mine that I work for, who sell organic shampoos to Latina in particular, humid weather is a massive, massive trigger that makes it difficult to control your hair. That's something that was really interesting as a trigger. The other one was having to go to a party in a few days or something, a social setting where you need to be noticed and you need to look good. So you can see the power of thinking it this way, because then you can start thinking about, okay, how can I be there when they experience those triggers? What can I do to use this information for good? So let me give you a step-by-step. So step one is to discover those triggers. There are a few ways to do that. The main way I would really advise you to go for would be to interview people who recently bought from you. And it doesn't mean just do that if you have like a B2B product that is expensive. I would really recommend you to do it for any type of products to really understand the journey that they took from the very first time they thought about it, which could be the trigger, to all of those triggers that add up all the way to igniting that TNT explosion of basically, I need to buy this product. I need to consider that category. So here is what Khalid Saleh, the founder of the conversion rate optimization agency InVeps, talks about. And this is what he recommends for interviewing customers. So one of the first things that we tell uh, our clients is, let's look at your uh, customers who bought from you. And and that's because I asked you, when did you buy? I like people who bought within the last three months. And we segment those into different buckets. And, And the idea is because with each bucket, there's probably different motivations, different emotions that trigger that event. Most of our customers are fairly established that they'll have two or three different buckets. And then we'll tell them, okay, we want to interview one or two 
pre, uh, recent customers from those uh, buckets. And we want to hear their story. We want to spend about 45 minutes hearing really your story about how you made the decision to buy the microphone. I tell them, think of it as us shooting a doc documentary. It's a documentary style. I'm the director. At some point, if you watch the documentary, we stop the documentary, the camera zoom in on you, and the director is asking you questions. The cameraman is behind, and we're zooming in. What was the day? How was the weather? Um, was it day or night? Did you get a phone call? And what's amazing, by the way, as you do those interviews, just like how you did, was like, I don't remember the day. I don't remember, like, you know, it's like, oh, it was a weekday, but maybe it was during the day. As you drill a bit deeper, all of a sudden, like, you know, something happens, you will eventually ask a question and you bring the person back to that state. And it's, oh, no, I remember. Yeah. Oh, it was Tuesday and it was just two o'clock and it was a little cloudy. I don't really care about those details, but I, the minute I see that light bulb go on, I know that I've got that mental state. And typical marketing interviews, we would ask people, oh, so how was the experience using our product? I'm not concerned about that. I do not ask that. That's something else. That's usability. I'm actually trying to capture the mental state of you made the when you made the decision. What triggered you? That's number one. But then think about the mic. Uh, what I would have asked you is to say, so let's go back a little bit further down the memory lane. When was the first time you actually considered buying a uh, Shure SMB7? Do you remember? You know why? We start going back, correct? Because there was like an a time that happened that you're like, you know what? Maybe you were listening to a podcast. Maybe you're and you're like, oh, I got to do some research. You could also observe people in an environment and seeing how they buy. That's something I mentioned before. But overall, I would say it's about really making a habit of observing people, observing why people take certain decisions, why they do certain things, why they don't, why you do certain things and why you don't, and trying to really reverse engineer what happened. What was the trigger? You know, trying to think about the last purchases that you made. What was the trigger? What made you buy? And being very curious about things in general, about why people take decisions, will really help you to uncover the right triggers moving forward. And it's really about using your intuition as well. There are some things that can't just be observed or asked about. If you do interviews, you will always have to do the job of making sure you're filling the gaps. So there's a few things that you could look into. The value pyramid, which is like about functional benefits, such as saving time or simplifying or making money, reducing risk, to emotional benefits, such as reducing anxiety and wellness and rewards, to life-changing stuff, such as providing hope or heirloom or affiliation and belonging, all the way to social impact, which is basically self-transcendence. And there is always multiple reasons why people do stuff. And if you only focus on the bottom of the pyramid, the functional stuff, even for B2B, you will miss out on core triggers that are usually emotional, usually life-changing, usually based on what is known as status. And status is usually involved in any decision, whether it's B2B, B2C, whatever acronym you want to use. Status is really important. And I just want to quote a few things from the book This is Marketing by Seth Godin, where he talks about six things that you need to know about status. So the first thing is that status is always relative. It doesn't matter where you are on the absolute scale of pain or gain or whatever. Instead, it's really about the perception of status relative to others in the group. And so depending on, on where people are in a group, depending on how they perceive themselves in a group, whatever that group means, status is relative. The second one is that status is in the eyes of the beholder. If you're seen as low status by outsiders, but as high status in your own narrative, then both things are true at different times to different people. Status at only two is the status that matters. Status is most relevant when we try to keep it or change it 
This is when triggers could happen. This is when chemical reaction happens. For many people, status is upmost in our minds in every interaction, but it only matters when the person we're engaging with cares about status. Status has inertia. We are more likely to work to maintain our status higher or low than we are to try to change it. So if we are threatened by our status to change potentially, threatened to be fired, threatened to be demoted, threatened to be mocked and whatever, threatened to look not as good as your friend, this is when triggers would happen. Number five, the status is learned. Our beliefs about status start early and yet the cohort we are with can influence our perception of our status in very little time. And finally, shame is a status killer. The reason that shame is used as a lever is simple. It works. If we accept the shame someone sends our way, it undermines our entire narrative about relative status. So you can see it's very deep you know, to uncover those triggers. But I believe that with a combination of interviews and intuition, based on what I told you, you will be able to discover very specific triggers. Once you have them, it's all about step two, selecting the right triggers. You won't be surprised me telling you that start with one trigger, especially if you're a small company, a startup, a small solopreneur, a consultant, and you're up against big brand, don't try to cover too many triggers because after that you'll get lost in the weeds. So there are basically two questions to ask yourself. How common is that trigger across the people who bought from you, the category buyers? Is this something that is quite common amongst all or is it something extremely small that you've only found in one or two people? And second, how original is it? Meaning, is this trigger only experienced by a specific group of people that shows some key differences in your market? Is this trigger specific to people who are very interesting for you because they bring you joy, because you have access to them, because they are in great pain, because they can pay you? If so, refine your segment to only focus on people who experience that trigger. So step three, once you have that trigger, try to be aware they experience that trigger. That's so important. And by where, I don't only mean physical location, I also mean about context and online setting. So for example, if one of the triggers is that it starts to rain and humid weather is something that people, they tend to buy your product because of it, then do your best to be there online, for example, by doing ads, specifically when it rains, and you can do that. Another one could be when Ofsted is about to visit and all of that. So really think about, okay, those people are experiencing the triggers. Where can we be to do this? And you can take it quite far. So here is Guillaume Caban, the ex-VP of growth for Segment, Drift, and, and Gorgeous, who's now advisor to B2B SaaS startups. And he's talking about how he uses company hiring as a trigger. So when company hires new employees and therefore being able to reach out to them as soon as it happens. So I, I built a specialty of acquiring, let's say, what we call a signal data, a business signal data. We talked about data nice, which technographics, you know, what our company is using as, as technologies. I've used stuff from Predict Leads, which is a company that tells me what are companies, what roles are companies hiring? Are they currently hiring for salespeople, CS people, VPs of uh, sales, VPs of product, whatever, right? This is public data that's on that job board. And so the company scrapes all the job boards of all companies in the US and structures that. And so it's legal, it's out there, it's just structured in a way I can use it because for me, a company hiring like a bunch of salespeople is a good signal if I'm selling a sales tool. That's one example. I buy data from G2. G2, you know, uh, I was a customer initially because they have intent data telling you which companies are currently um, in a buying process and looking at multiple tools in your category. So also, great signal. I look at Bombora, which tells me what companies are, are, are reading on the web. I have like tons and tons and tons of signals like that, right? Uh, to try and understand what's happening in the life of that company, right? And I use it both to understand, is it the right time? 
and to also to craft the best message. So think about physical locations where people experience their triggers. If they get hungry in the beach, then maybe that's when you need to advertise, for example. But also, this is kind of the entire value proposition of content marketing and search engine in general. There are specific type of searches about triggers and starting to look into specific categories and asking questions and all of that. People will tend to search online, talk to it about their friends when they experience specific triggers and do your best to be there. It's really about matching the triggers that people experience to doing your best to try to be there as they experience it. Step four is to try to build mental associations between a trigger and your brand. That's really mentioned by Jenny Romaniuk in her book, How Brands Grow, part two. And this is really about reaching out to folks who might potentially experience that trigger, that category entry points in the future. So for example, if one of the triggers is the humid weather, the fact that it creates like curly hair that you can't control, then this is probably an entire campaign to do on that. And what happens then is that you start building association between the humid weather with your product. That means that the next time this trigger happens, people will be more likely to think of you as the brand. And that's when you start to reach your segment kind of universally without having to think of demographics and firmographics elements that are not actionable at all, but really about behavioral psychographic elements that are very unstable. Step five is that you can become the trigger. So remember the list of type of triggers that you can go after, but there's a few that you can actually leverage in order to create that trigger in people's minds so that the chemical reaction is created thanks to your effort. So social proof is one, you know, how can you make sure that more people see the effect that product or service had on people, right? That's a concept coined by Robert Cialdini in his book, Persuasion. Usage, how can you make it more visible? when people use your products so other people see it. And it doesn't necessarily mean physical, it could be all about the packaging and the way they use it online. How can you make it obvious to others so that you can potentially create a trigger there? Advertising in general is a massive trigger and obviously they see your ad, they think of you and they buy from you straight away. But then you have other psychological principles like scarcity that might actually create a move from a stable kind of moment where the TNT is not ignited to actually, okay, I need to do something about it now, about making sure that you create healthy scarcity in that sense. The concept of free is also something very important here, where you can really become the trigger by giving something away for free that might actually make them realize that they need to do something next. And then finally, step six is to do your best to close the gap between the moment when people experience the trigger until they can purchase from you. So that's something that's been mentioned in the research by Google called the messy middle. And it's really about supplying the best experience possible as fast as possible to those people once they experience the trigger. Now, I know that sounds quite basic, but it's actually something that is extremely important in order for you to grab market share. Making sure that the experience is fast, as fast as you can. Making sure that you don't have inconsistent or unclear messaging that might create confusion. It's all about obsessing over that single category and free point, that single trigger, all the way to the purchase. Making sure you don't show inadequate information, making sure you don't have user experience issues and all of that. So let me summarize all the stuff in this episode. Just like chemical reaction, you need all components to make it work or else just a stable TNT that doesn't explode. For this TNT to explode, you need something to happen, you need a trigger. So you have the desired state, the constraints and the trigger. Without a trigger, you'll struggle to find customers ready to buy, you'll struggle to know what they search for on Google, you'll struggle to know what to say, you'll struggle to know where to be, in what situation or what ads to use or what message to say. Knowing their pains, what they want to achieve or the desires are not enough for people to buy something. It's not because people have pains to alleviate or gains to get that they will actually start acting on it. 
And this is where the trigger is so important. It's responsible for moving consumers from a passive state to an active purchase state. In terms of steps, identify them by trying to interview as many customers or customers who bought a competitor before. Make sure to fill the blanks with your intuition. Select the most common potent one that you can take advantage of. Make sure to be where they experience those triggers, whether it's in real life or online. Content marketing is basically the entire response of specific type of triggers. Do your best to build associations between the triggers that people experience and your brand, or just become the trigger to initiate this chemical reaction. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm pouring my heart and soul into this. Uh, it will mean a lot to me if you check out the newsletter that goes with this podcast at everyonehatesmarketers.com. I send this newsletter every Tuesday. It's packed with very practical, step-by-step, actionable ways for you to radically stand out. And when you sign up, you also get access to a free eight-lesson course on the same topic. All right, see you on the other side. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said your content attacks the mind primarily which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do but we don't have the courage to do it our way Mark who just subscribed a couple uh, days before said this is my first issue of your newsletter love it glad I subscribed Brianna said I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one came through the list two select all unread industry email except yours three delete and don't think twice four quickly scheme yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.